0: you know because you think about I think about residency I had to do two toenail removals and I'm like ew like I never did a toenail removal after residency I hate that stuff (laughs) I'm like was that a good use of my time heck no I should have been learning contextual interview instead of basic podiatry Ah."
1: To the Integrated Care podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am the production editor, Grace Pratt, PhD, LMFT, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am joined by an all female crew of co hosts today. We are just enjoying that fact. I have this light and bubbly tone, but we're going to have a kind of a serious topic, as we do sometimes, talking about uh, grief and loss and uh, bereavement and integrated care today, which, once again, I know I always say this, but I thought for sure we talked about this topic before, but I went through all of our archives and I did not see it there, Um, so we're going to get there but before we do I want to start the way we always do with our introductions and our icebreaker question and for our icebreaker I would like to know what's your favorite sweet snack I know we've talked about road trip snacks before that was a while ago that we had that icebreaker but I had a friend here the other night and we uh were just trying a sampling of like different chocolate things from Trader Joe's so we had the like the chocolate almond butter cups and we had the chocolate covered orange pieces which don't sleep on those those were amazing Uh but it made me wonder,
0: what's your favorite sweet treat? Uh, so going around the circle the way you look to me, first we have Jen Thomas. Hi everybody, so I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine trained physician, Morris Hospital, um, integrated care provider, I'm doing mainly the collaborative care model where I am in my neck of the woods. So. Hello and good to see everybody. Favorite sweet treat. That's a good one. I think I'm going to have to pick an oldie, but a goodie. So my best friend growing up, Lindsay, her mom made this fabulous recipe, a gooey butter cake. I guess it's a St. Louis thing. Are you guys familiar with gooey butter cake? If not, you need to be. Um, It's the most indulgent, like stick of butter, yellow cake mix, block of cream cheese, like I think even a pound of powdered sugar. I mean, it's, it's awful listing off all the things in it, but it's, it comes together in a glorious, uh, (laughs) divine baked gooey experience. My kids love it. And we make it a couple times a year and it's definitely an indulgent, but um, yeah, check it out. Gooey butter cake. It's (laughs) good and bad. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) As all the best sweet treats are. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Next we have Bridget Beachy. I'm Bridget. I'm a licensed psychologist by trade. Uh, work as a bhc director of bhc consultant other things uh yeah so as far as indulgent treats uh definitely anything with excessive peanut butter sauce so i don't you know i try to stay away from desserts other than like frozen cool whip that's like any, ever, anyone eat frozen cool whip like
3: kind of never had it yeah ice cream
2: it's good I it's mean, good you got to get your mind right that it's not going to be ice cream. if you haven't had ice cream in a really
1: long time then you, could, you probably could pretend it's like ice
2: cream <laughs> yeah you gotta it's like any type of alternative uh it's like oh it's like this but not quite you have to get mm-hmm. your mind right and not expect it to taste like that thing yeah uh but i do enjoy a little bit of uh, frozen cool whip but as far as like the indulgent treat uh if you get like when you go to dairy queen you get uh like a Reese's blizzard but ask for not only extra Reese's pieces uh but ask for peanut butter sauce or extra peanut butter sauce in my case so they have like literally a peanut butter sauce thing that they just like pour into that so just each bite is just a lot of peanut butter mixed with the ice cream so
0: it's Nice. Oh, I have to give that a try. My oldest, she loves peanut butter shakes, the milkshake. Never milkshakes her thing. So that's right up her alley. (laughs) That's great. I'm giving it a shot.
1: (laughs) Sounds delicious. I'm a big Reese's person. I have to hide them from my kids if I want them to last because I have uh, uh, spawned some of my own Reese's lovers. And so (laughs) you got to protest you got to have a snack drawer, a snack drawer that's away from all of the children that they don't access. Uh, Next, we have, uh, rounding out our crew this morning, Monica Williams-Harrison.
3: Yeah, I was going to say snack drawer, but then you have to be careful. Don't let them hear you rustling anything. Um, Monica Williams-Harrison, licensed clinical social worker, um, integrated care lover, um, clinical trainer and practice coach with the University of Washington, AIM Center. And I am a like cakes, donuts type person, but my latest kind of sweet treat indulgence has been the cinnamon rolls. It's like the TikTok cinnamon rolls. Oh my gosh, y'all. Like, Are it's the, the ones best thing or which TikTok no like rolls so you get the cinnamon rolls I can send it to you but you get the cinnamon rolls basically you're putting them in the dish and then there's like heavy uh heavy cream that you're pouring mm-hmm. in there so you're baking it with the heavy cream the mm. way they come out is almost like the Cinnabon
0: Yeah, Uh, I can smell it, Monica.
3: Uh, It's so amazing. (laughs) But I had to look look at a couple different TikToks because I like to make extra icing because I like the icing. Um, But it is, oh my God, like I'll never make a regular cinnamon roll ever again in my entire life. Mm. Game Mm -hmm. (laughs) changer. Yes, game changer. (laughs) we'll have to put that our
2: our show notes you're just going to be a list of recipes (laughs) yes this is actually a pinterest episode not Uh, right surprise
1: Change, change of plans um my there is a ice cream shop slash cookie shop near here that does like kind of custom ice cream sandwiches so you pick your top cookie pick your bottom cookie and then pick your ice cream in the middle and also they deliver uh so it's like it's it's too, it's it's a it's a bad good thing
0: <laughs> too accessible uh, there, it's too easily accessible
1: <laughs> yes uh but i it's funny because i've been getting i'm not making this up gooey butter Cookies on the outside. Yes. With <laughs>
0: peanut butter, chocolate, ice cream. And We're the- so aligned. Look at this. <laughs> Even in our snack sweet. If I could throw a little cinnamon roll on You give be our- a, a little
3: cinnamon <laughs> flavor. There's oh, cinnamon flavor ice cream. All of our
0: snacks. So next time
1: you all come to Oklahoma, we will go to Baked Bear and have wee butter, peanut butter, chocolate, ice cream cook- sandwiches. And yes, I did say yes. it's 22 degrees and windy outside this morning, but that is not Rula ice cream.
3: Oh okay i think the colder states love ice cream mm-hmm. right oh yeah. Okay. yeah
0: anytime <laughs>
1: Yep. Yeah. um and although neftali wasn't able to be with us here today he did send over a little bit of news and notes and so let's listen in on that
4: thanks grace thanks podcast team uh wish i could be there with you today Here are today's news and notes. Um, Just a couple of quick items here to get you back to the podcast conversation. CFHA's Leadership and Growth Virtual Conference is coming up, so please go register at integratedcareconference.com. If you're really interested in growing your career in integrated care, maybe developing some new skills and just taking some time, honestly, to reflect on your career and where it's headed, this is a great way to do it, just to create some kind of mindfulness space for it. Um, so it's going to be a two-day virtual event, April 19th through the 20th. And again, you can register at integratedcareconference.com. Um, you'll also find information there about our fall in-person conference in Phoenix, Arizona. So same site, integratedcareconference.com. And if you are interested in figuring out what's going on at CFHA, we always have tons of stuff going on. Just letting you know about uh, the events calendar on our website cfha.net backslash events so pretty easy to remember you can also just go to cfha.net and just scroll down to the events kind of tab there um, but we've got in coming up in march here for example we've got the cocm work group meeting value-based payments work group pediatric sig meeting lgbtq plus community conversation we've got a director's group meeting just medicine committee meetings uh, and a women's leadership meeting. I mean, it just goes on and on. So check it out at cfha.net backslash events. And that is our news and notes back to the podcast team. Thank
1: you, Naftali. And now we'll transition into our main segment. So, not to bring the mood down too far, uh, but longtime listeners of our show will know that my mom, who I was very close to, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2018 and died in February of 2020. And yesterday, was the three year anniversary of her passing. And so grief and loss and bereavement have been very much at the center and the forefront of my mind. And I was thinking about how frequently when we're working in primary care and in medicine in general, these ideas of of loss and bereavement and grief come up um, much more than I ever anticipated, even working as an outpatient therapist. Of course, people come into therapy who are grieving But it's such an intrinsic part of life. And when we come alongside people in this larger space of their life in medicine, it's bound to come up. So I I thought that it could make a rich conversation for us to talk about. How is that presenting in integrated care? Let's have a little bit more of those like practical on the ground for clinician episodes today opening in that way. uh, I wonder if anybody has some kind of general thoughts to share about grief and loss and bereavement in integrated care.
3: Yeah, I have some general. Um, I do remember when your mom was passing away, it was around the same time that my dad was as well. One of the things that I um, oftentimes trying to get individuals to realize who are part of an integrated care team is that grief and loss is more than just death, right? Like family members or someone in your life that is has passed away. Like there's grief and loss that happens from a divorce, there's grief and loss that happens from the loss of a job or transition, you know, your kids going off to college. Like there are all of these um, different ways that grief shows up that we don't always think about. And I think it is easy in primary care to only focus on, oh, they're grieving when they've like a family member or somebody has died and not think about these other life changes and transitions and things that happen that come with a component of grief to them because it's a loss, right? And sometimes it's a positive thing, like your kid going off to school is amazing, like whoo, you are halfway there because you're not done, but you're like you are on the road, you have helped them succeed, but there's still a loss that comes with that. And I think that um it is easy to overlook how some of our patients um might be handling that or experiencing that if we're not aware of other symptoms and things that come up for people who are experiencing grief and loss.
1: Yeah. And I think it doesn't always start with a patient being like, hi, I'm grieving (laughs) or does it ever, I I mean, maybe we see someone who's like in that immediate aftermath and is panicking or having trouble sleeping and they come in, but I think much more often it's running through the background of someone. And, you know, we talk about the dangers of our screenings. And this is, you know, one of the things I wanted us to talk about, like, how do we not, how do we acknowledge and honor the space for grieving, but without pathologizing it? Um, Because what are the symptoms of grief, you know, and loss? you, you can't sleep right. And maybe you don't feel hungry and you don't want to eat or you're distracted all the time. Like I just, It described like a nine on the PHQ nine already right there with those items, right? Or feeling hopeless or um, even, you know, for many people, especially who, if it is because of a death of a loved one, they do think more about dying or even wish they could die to go be with that person. But that is not an expression of suicidal ideation. But depending on how someone's reading those items on the screener, they could be like, yeah, I think about it dying every day. So we need to bring so much nuance into this conversation, and to recognize that I think sometimes when we're like, "Oh, PG12, there's some depression going on here." That's right. Uh, you know, I'm happy we're on video now, uh, and I hope that someone is watching this on YouTube because the way Bridget just rolled her
3: eyes.
2: <laughs> Although they
1: won't, Bridget always it. gives
3: us the nonverbals. So I'm just saying.
2: They won't see it unless I'm saying something, though, because of the way it's like... Oh, that's true. Well, note for the audio, Bridget is rolling her eyes. I'll have to make like a yelp and then roll my (laughs) eyes. Yeah, I I mean, that's why I I actually think it's harmful in our field. And I'm so sorry, but, you know, I'm just going to say stuff because I always do. And you guys haven't fired me yet. So until then, until you asked me not to come anymore, this is what y'all are going to get. Uh, That's why I never start with symptoms. I don't even ask people what they're coming in for. I swear on my life. I don't ask people about their symptoms at all. And you might be thinking to yourself, that's crazy. Bridget is a clinical psychologist working as a BHC in a primary care setting, having primarily 25 minute visits. What do you mean you don't ask about symptoms? Well, because I ask about the context and then they tell me the symptoms. And so you have to know them as a clinician, but, um, Yeah, when you start with who you live with and what's your relationship and your family, those are the first three items of the contextual interview. They tell you everything that you need to know in a very short period of time. Uh, I mean, not always. I know that that was like a big generalization, but if somebody isn't sleeping and whatever with the PHQ, it's at the 12, I never come in and say, oh, well, your PHQ is in the moderate depression zone. Let's talk about it. I'm like, all right, hey, I see that. You know, we got some high scores going on. I'm just kind of really interested in what's going on in your life right now. Is it cool if I ask some questions to get to know you and your situation so that we can come up with a plan that will be helpful today? And they're like, sure, that's it. Then boom, right into, all right. So, you know, who you living with right now? And then once you do that, the stuff comes out and never, y'all make an assumption whether or not if somebody did die, say, oh, I'm so sorry. Find out how the person feels about it first. Uh, because the amount of times I've said something like, like two or three times, I guess that's all it took uh, to be like, oh, man, that's so tough that you lost your husband. And they're like, no, he was extremely abusive, X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. So I learned that lesson after like two or three times of saying that, uh, to just tell to have the person tell you how they feel about it.
0: That's Mm -hmm. great. I love hearing you guys talk Mm -hmm. about this from your BHC behavioral health background, because from the physician background, it's like, we needed so much more of this training. Like it was, you know, a session here and there on grief and oh yeah, it's normal. But I mean, ill-equipped is how I feel a lot of the time. It's like, yes, we know that's part of life, but there's also this vein in medicine of death is the, failure, right? We screwed up. We didn't do something or we neglected something. So um, it doesn't have a, a, it's natural. We should expect it, process it. So it is tough. I think, I mean, as much as I intellectually guess, it's part of life and sitting with patients and sitting with them with their pain, it makes sense. Then there's all the other you know, stuff in primary care of like, okay, but we're three patients behind. And you're like, uh, how do I, how do I tackle this with empathy and be present with this person and juggle everything else that we've got going on? So um, wish, wish we did a better job. Wish I had more training um, in, in just the knowing, and even what's no, normal versus complicated. I mean, even, even that pathologizes it, right? Like, well, what's normal? Are is it normal for you to be this sad a month out, three months out? You know, is it now a disorder? I mean, in medicine, we're very, you know checklisty DSM. Right. So it's like, ah, that doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't serve us well. I don't think when we have that lens sometimes.
1: I agree because who is to say what's normal for this person and grief, like many things is not linear. And so I think that's another thinking error that medicine tends to make that like, okay, well, you know, you have done your time in grief. You're feeling better. Great. We can check that off your list time to move (laughs) on. Uh, But grief is not like, Uh, you know, there may be exacerbations, but it's not like a time limited bound process and someone can feel a lot better and then have an anniversary or have a reminder or have something else going on in their life that then complicates things. And I think a big piece of even helping patients walk through grief is doing some psychoeducation about this and helping them understand what a grieving process looks like and that it is normal to have these waves. It's not to say that they shouldn't ask for help or that they shouldn't experience that pain or reach out when they have it. Um, but also sometimes just knowing like, Hey, you're not crazy. And it's okay that this is still painful months, years, however long out that it is. Um, I think can make it be really comforting for people. So a lot of what I do when I'm talking to someone and we identify that there's been a loss or that they're experiencing grief, is ask them about their expectations and uh, of grief and or how did they see people in their family grieve and how did they experience that um, and provide a little bit of information about what we know about grief from a little bit of a you know scientific standpoint that then they can process.
2: Yeah, Grace, I think you hit the nail on the head about helping folks not feel like they're crazy or that they're always gonna feel this way. That's a big part of the work that uh, I feel that I'm doing on a regular basis when it comes to grief. is just like, I mean, most of the homework is feel like shit because this is a really shitty thing that happened and that permission to feel difficult. And you know, that's my translation. Cause I know like I come from an act conceptualization which is about acceptance and willingness but you don't go to somebody and say like, accept it and be willing to experience the pain. The pain is a reflection of how much you love the person. Uh, I mean, that's our academic, and it's translating into You everything. could do
3: oh, it, and they probably would cuss you out, but you could do it. <laughs> you could do
2: it. I recommend translating that into, okay, yeah, you feel like shit, because somebody who's really, really important to you died or transitioned or whatever was going on, and like that would be weird if you weren't having difficulty. Um, so, yeah, we should expect to feel really, really terrible, um, so I think we should just feel that way. And they're like, what? And they're like, Because every other person in their life has told them, what, think about the bright side, remember the good times, blah, blah, blah. And we're giving them a completely different experience. And that in and of itself, I've found is what 90% of people need is just that.
1: But it's also such an argument for keeping our focus on the functional, right? Like, how is this impacting your life? Because it is okay to feel really terrible, and of course you do. And then sometimes you still have to go to a job and provide for a family, or you still have to try to be present for your kids, or you still have to record a podcast. And so, like, how do you how do you walk that line of finding that place where you're functional and meeting those goals that you have and, and needs that you have in your life? Um, which I think is a bit a big part of, you know, it's not about the symptoms back to what you were saying at the beginning. It's about the life that someone is living, and and what's important to them, and how that aligns with the bigger picture of their health, and their community, and their family.
3: Yeah, I think if you focus on that, it also, there's always been, at least for me, in a lot of the, the places that I've worked in, and spaces that I've been in, this kind of almost like there's a time where it's just supposed to stop, like you're not supposed to feel it anymore and you know so i've had um been a part of a team and, and had colleagues say well that was three years ago like get like not like this this something's wrong with this person that was three years ago why are they still talking about this they are obsessed right so, so just thinking negatively and putting a time frame on it um which is why i like the idea of focusing on the functionality how like how are they functioning because there there is no real time like are well, you to tell somebody else how long they're supposed to be grieving or, you know, experiencing something. But it's challenging because I do think that we are in a field that historically is a fix-it field. That, I mean, healthcare, someone's sick, you fix it. Someone's feeling this, you fix it. They have these symptoms, yep. you fix it. Um, and so I think it could be challenging to almost, it's almost like sitting with it. it that could be challenging um, for some individuals on a part of an integrated care team. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, would say, I agree, Monica, so much that with trainees, there's such angst about like when somebody else is upset, you know, when the patient is distressed in the room of like, well, what am I going to give them? What am I, I going to do? And it's like, you ain't going to do nothing, but sit there and be with them and hear it. And it, the cool thing is, is if you, under, if you come from a contextual lens and you're able to learn about this person who died and you're learning about this person's life, right? Like the patient who comes in and you're learning about their life and how things work out. And then you hear that, okay, my my kid died, or my mom died, or my brother died. But you at that point know that they're a really super tight knit family and that this was the second of four kids and they're the third of the fourth kids and the two of them were the closest. Once you know some of these dynamics and you, as the clinician, are like in their skin, right? You're like seeing things from their lens, you're living in their world. When you go to say, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible like you must your heart must be broken they're like somebody gets it whereas if someone just says like oh you know what's going on and then you know i've been having headaches oh when did the headache start well my brother died um two you know two weeks ago oh i'm i'm so sorry it's like the first the second one is like like a like an academic exercise it's like oh i'm so sorry and they might be really well-intentioned you know they might really feel sorry that their brother died two weeks ago but the best way for a clinician to feel what the patient is feeling a certain degree of course is to know the nuance like grace was saying the nuance behind it so then when you say oh my gosh i'm here with you it's actually the the reciprocity the, like your mirror neurons are going crazy with the patient they feel that you get it and that is the intervention mm, mm.
0: that's so wise yeah i mean i think impulsively with the medicine it's the it's the fix it monica right like i'm supposed to go in there and do something for you give you a pill or give you a whatever you know do and prescribe annual. that pen. right you know <laughs> I, I mean i that's as much as i'm trying to unlearn that with all of this great influence that i'm learning all this integrated care stuff with you guys these years it's it's really cool just to hear it's like you don't have to go fix it you just sit with them and listen and i think a handful of times i've touched on that and like realize like, oh, wait, right. We did. I just, just sit and listen to him talk about his wife that he loved. And, you know, I didn't give him a pill, but you know, he said, wow, that was really helpful. And he came back and we talked the next month and it was just very eye-opening and surprising that even as a medical provider, you can help someone in that way just by listening. I mean, I just feel like that's something we should just spread around to all the, you know, new trainees of like, yes, Bridget, your point 100%, just sit there and listen. I mean, I don't know, that's so, so helpful, (laughs) so freeing. You
1: know, it's funny because sitting and listening and connecting, like those are all the central part of what we offer and the relationship is still the tool of the connection. And there are some things that I find helpful that come up a lot. So for example, sleep, like these patients, a lot of times can benefit some really for some really specific discussion around sleep hygiene. And like, let's at least maximize the things that you can control to improve your sleep because grief is affecting it so much already. The other thing is that it's grief can be so culturally bound and there's so many like rituals and rites that help people move through that processing and so opening space for them to talk about what does bereavement look like in their family and in their culture and um the idea that a ritual is just something a routine that you do with a meaning behind it um and they can develop anything that can be a ritual um and, and maybe there are some that are prescribed in their family maybe they you know, whether it's family or cultural or religious based, but they also can make up their own. And I think that is a pretty powerful thing that I don't know that we talk about it in that language very overtly, culturally or in the larger conversation about grief. And so being able to present that to someone and encourage them to think about what would be meaningful to them as they process their loss has also been a really helpful conversation for me a lot of times.
0: That's awesome. Oh, Teach me more about that. The ritual, is it like a honoring their memory? Like a, it's an anniversary? Like what, how would you help someone with, with doing that?
1: I, I tell people it can be literally anything. So a ritual is just a, a routine. So it needs to have some kind of sequence of steps uh, and with a meaning attached to it. So it could be that they go to a place and eat a breakfast where they used to have it together and share those memories in that space or take a loved one with them. It could be that they bake a favorite recipe. It could be that they write a letter and burn it. Um, all of these things are examples of rituals. And we have some that are, you know, commonly done like funerals or rituals or burials, sometimes or rituals. And, and again, there's differences based in culture and things like that. But any specific like meaning and intention that someone's attaches to a specific like routine or behavior can be a ritual. And if they do it repeatedly, that can be meaningful to some people versus some people they just need to do it once. Um, but it's helping. I'm seeing in the comments Monica and Bridget agreeing about this. So I'd love to hear more of what how you've used this or how you find it helpful.
3: Yeah, I think rituals are really important for multiple reasons, right? Not only sometimes to to provide some comfort to individuals, but I think about um there's some cultural implications sometimes for some rituals. And I always want to know about that for the person sitting in front of me, because sometimes we get into the habit of um, kind of almost using the same intervention or suggesting the same thing to a patient and it might actually go against some type of cultural ritual, right? So I have been in a space and and will never name anyone or what space it was in, but I've been in a space where an individual was having a really hard time um, with a death. And the recommendation that was given to the individual um, was, oh, well, if you, like, if you don't want to go to the funeral, then like, just don't go, like, just don't go. However, that actually caused more stress for this individual because it was the family's ritual. There's a wake the day before and you got to greet people for two and three hours. And then you go to the funeral and that's two or three hours. And then you go to the, like, it was a family religious ritual That even though the individual didn't, like, was having a really hard time, the thought of not going actually caused them more stress, because now it's like, what's the family going to say, and this is just what we do, right? And although sometimes the things that we do, it's like, you ain't got to do it, but if it is a ritual, and it depends on how that individual feels about it. And I think that we oftentimes don't ask that. We don't ask and then we don't know what some of the cultural implications might be. And we go straight into suggesting things that go against some things that are a sense of normalcy, even in a weird kind of tough time for some of our patients.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that we're really coming onto the this it's about the approach that we're coming with a patient from uh, switching from well let me tell you what to do to be more inquisitive about what's going on what what's you know and like grace was saying what's the biggest difficulty for you right now to be able to get through your day oh it's my sleep okay would would it be okay if we talked about that or when when we're talking about the rituals i mean a really simple and easy thing that any clinician could do at any time is literally just ask the patient is there anything that you do to honor or remember the person is there anything that you do that comforts you or helps, helps you to feel close during this time, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, worded nicely. It could just literally be like, well, is there anything that you do? <laughs> as long as you literally are genuinely curious, the amount of folks, I used to think I had to help them come up with the ritual. You don't have to help them come up with a ritual in most cases. Most of the cases, they already have something.
0: Yeah, we just didn't call it a ritual. That's so great, Bridget. I, I can think of a patient. Uh, she sewed me a cute little crocheted cross ornament. She died of pancreatic cancer. It's on my Christmas tree, and every time we're decorating for Christmas, I'm like, "Oh, May made that. That's a ritual, huh? <laughs> Look at that." Yes, that is hundred <laughs> percent a ritual. Okay,
2: oh, that's great. Yeah, and it, I think it I is have a locket yeah, or a photo yeah. or something. Okay, yeah. and it's about
1: the meaning that we attach to it. Okay, because a ritual gives you a conduit for those emotions uh and you know if it happens communally like with a funeral like Monica was talking about or other kinds of um right now the the ritual that's developing in my family is I my mom had a recipe notebook and it had was like taped together all these like cut out of magazines handwritten there's grease spots on it and so I have been holding it. And for Christmas this year, I had it reproduced. Um, And I gave it to my, a copy to my brother and a copy to my dad. And now every time one of us cooks something out of the cookbook, we send the page number and say, oh, this recipe was so good. And like, even that is becoming a little bit of a ritual for us and a a place of connection. Um, so it's, it's about this sort of honoring and moving through because it touches too. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that example with your patient, Jen, because the more ambiguous our loss is, um, sometimes the more complicated that grief is to process. And there aren't a lot of scripts for how we as healthcare providers should deal with grief and loss of our patients or the people that we work with and so there's another concept in you know psychology about uh, disenfranchised grief and it's kind of this disconnected it's the, these grief feelings that are floating around but there's not really a particular outlet or, or a path for them and i think that happens to us as providers because we're not the family of these people we are not in their inner circle necessarily but we build relationships and our doctor patient relationship is not just about the patient's relationship to us it's also about our relationships to the people that we're taking care of so i'm curious if or how, um, you guys have experienced this, these feelings of grief and loss around the patient care that you do, um, or have,
2: how have you seen that on your teams that you've worked with and how do we deal with that? That was the surprising aspect for me. I wasn't like when going in integrated care, I had not thought about if you're working with full spectrum, a lot of times you're working with folks with, you know, uh, chronic conditions. And so having patients die, like kind of regularly that was uh, a shock to my system whereas our medical colleagues uh especially our folks that uh, are at the hospital this is like every day for them so it's a really it was like I'm like oh my god my patient died like well yeah I had three patients died last week and you're like oh like I mean they weren't you know not in the, like I know nobody's but... saying anything mean or anything but it it's it's a different um so yeah, yeah I'd be really curious from Jen's perspective
0: <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I wish I dealt with it better. I feel like I do have some level of avoidance where there is that fix it mentality and the like, you know, even in like documentation, you're always drilled in with that, like, you know, malpractice. What if you get sued? What if they die? You know, so I don't know. We just... I don't think it's necessarily a healthy culture for us. I like that. What was it disenfranchised grief where it's floating around? Totally. That's totally us awesome in medicine, right? It's floating around. I don't know where to put it or is it my fault or is it, am I doing it right or whatever? Absolutely. I think that's a hundred percent our culture and it'd be great to know how to cope with that and direct it somewhere healthier. And I, I don't know how to do that. I would, I'd love to learn. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I don't
3: know, it's hard. It's hard, and I think, of course, everyone um, deals with it differently. Um, I used to work in nephrology um, where we were, you know, team approach, and we had some patients who passed away a lot, um, and so then not only did you, you start to become a family, especially with the dialysis patients, because you're seeing them three times a week for four hours, and um, you end up being like this other extended family, Um we used a lot of humor that maybe some other people didn't understand, um, <laughs> our dry humor, but it was what what worked for us, um, that, you know, of that team that I was on, and I think different patients hit you differently in terms of um, how you handle it and, and how you respond, you know, and so I think if you cry about a patient, well, you're human, like, you're okay, you gotta beat yourself up because you're you are upset your patient died, like, you're human too, Um, and I think we're so hustle. and I mean, we're primary care, right, like, we're rocking, we're, like, we're in and out with patients, and then you get a message from front office, like, hey, the police just came by to confirm that such and such was a patient here, well, what happened, well, they passed away, and now there's still, like, four patients for you to still go see, but now you just found out you lost this one, like, it's, um, it's a lot, and then I think if you tack on I want to imagine for our primary care uh, providers, like, "Oh, well, they died from something medical," right?" Mm-hmm. Then you're mm-hmm. like, Yes. Did I miss yes. Like did I miss it?" Well, yeah. you know, like I'm sure that that would yeah. would run through the Ugh. mind.
0: Yeah, And for me, it comes up at inopportune times where I, or not inopportune, I'm human, but it's come up at times where I'm like, dang it, I wasn't in control. Like I didn't see this grief coming. Um, <laughs> I can think of uh, watching the pals class. They have a video on if a child dies, you know, and and how grief would be for the family. And I was taking that class a couple of years ago and um, I'd been hiking in Colorado with my friends and a gentleman died of cardiac arrest on the trail. So like someone went to get an AED and he was gone, we were doing CPR and it was it was was really traumatic because it was outside of the hospital experience and you know the crowd was like oh you're a doctor and I'm like yeah but that doesn't mean I can save this man and his son was there and it was really awful and um you know processed that but then months later I'm sitting in pals and they're talking about a if a child dies and here I'm like here come the tears I'm hyperventilating I like walked out of the room and I what is that (laughs) I mean it was I was very uncomfortable with that but I had some awesome nurses that maybe you know have dealt with that more or they're more seasoned and they're like oh yeah and then then they told me their story like yep i I can think of that one case that kid that died in the car accident that always brings up for me and it was just very validating like okay you're human you're gonna have those whoa where did that come from it's okay kind of experiences so um yeah and i don't mean inopportune i guess it's just uh i need to just roll with that a bit right like let that wash over you i'm like okay that that happened it's not (laughs) it's not a bad thing maybe it's a good thing So.
1: Uh, so much of our um struggle sometimes comes when we try to avoid it. Um, that's, it goes back to a a big act principle too. Um, I think I've told this, uh, analogy metaphor on the podcast before, but it's one of my favorites. I'm always using it. So I'm going to say it again. Um, grief and anger and other uncomfortable emotions is kind of like, uh, if you're, you're at the beach or you're swimming and you have a beach ball and you're holding it under the water and like no big deal it's a beach ball it weighs like a few ounces you can hold it under the water but like eventually the longer you hold it under the water it's gonna your arms are gonna get tired and then they're gonna your hands are gonna slip off and it's gonna come up and it's gonna smack you in the face and it's gonna hurt and like it's gonna not be great um but if you can learn to kind of let the beach ball up in a controlled way You can rest a little while and then you can put it back down and it stays a process that you feel like you have some um, competency, like some, some, I don't know what the word I'm looking for you, but you feel like you're in control of it. We can't always be in control of our grief and we can't always be in control of our strong emotions. But if we can learn to let them to the surface, sometimes intentionally in a safe place or a safe context with those people who are safe in our community, then we can have the strength that we need to, sometimes when we need to refocus or we need to get back to the task at hand to put them back down under the water for a little while because we know that we can let them back up. Um, and, And I think that comes with, you know, to to translate it comes with if we can let ourselves experience it or learn to have that comfort in letting the grief come to the surface sometimes, then there will be less of the it smacks you on in the face mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. Now that still sometimes will happen, especially like the closer to home it hits, sometimes sometimes yeah. somebody comes and pushes you from the behind in the pool and your arms slip off and it whatever. <laughs> uh, this this <laughs> metaphor is getting driven into the ground. But um it it helps to have some of that controlled release and that's where it ties back into like compassion fatigue and burnout for our providers too that Mm -hmm. you know there there's a place for that medical humor that dark humor but also I think it um can turn into like a real jadedness or a real disconnection from the reality of the emotions of the situation and so it can be a hard line to walk it is
0: yeah I like that. I love that though, the the beach ball, letting it <laughs> come up and down. That's that's great. Thank you. I love that metaphor. I that's use it great. All the time. It's a good one. I know I've said one. it before. <laughs> um and,
1: and you, you know, you spoke to the power of community and hearing those stories from those nurses. I think that makes such a big difference when we have a trusted person or safe people in our circles that we can talk to. And hopefully we're building this on our teams, right? Is this something that you guys have experienced from a team standpoint? Mm-hmm
2: we haven't actually no <laughs> yeah, wow. was just a, yeah okay a, a good job at all
0: like when we find out somebody dies we're like oh god
2: and then we like and we move on
0: yeah we move same on. same yeah. and there's a deceased marker at the top of their how, how dehumanizing is that in our emr deceased you know and like and they are it's the way to categorize it but it is just a label and move on i mean i don't know we don't process it as a team ever we should
1: I think maybe we have some opportunity
0: here. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, it is definitely something to, to think about how are we going to process. And um, I was almost going to use the word debrief, but that sounds so formal, but we do nothing, you know? So it's almost like everybody just like, you, you just go on with your day. You got more patients to see and patient in room four needs you patient room six needs blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, like we go on. I've not, worked anywhere yet on a team where we've had a real um, plan or discussion around what we would do um, when we find out some of our patients have passed away, Grace, even in you- dialysis. Like, I'm yeah. like, yeah.
2: Grace, did you guys did You, I'm like now thinking about, because uh, I, we are a residency as well, uh, and I'm just realizing that we talk about the academic topic of grief and the rituals and the contextual approach and all that, but we don't, um, and we like offer like support, like, hey, you can come talk to me, but do you guys do anything to help them to actually so yeah
1: yeah they don't always love it
2: <laughs> i
1: force them into rituals as often as possible um so we have a monthly resident support group that meets uh, and in that group uh we talk a lot about lots of issues facing the residency but like even yesterday when we talk about hard cases, um, one of our residents was bringing up a patient who is approaching the end of his life, who he's worked with really closely, and it's just kind of a sad situation. And everybody was telling him, "Oh, you've done everything you can. You've done everything you can." And I stopped the conversation. I was like, "I think, I think Mesa knows that he did everything he can, but I wonder what it looks like for us to just hold space for the grief of this." And I used it as a little teaching point of you know disenfranchised grief and the things that we're talking about today but so ours come up in that, um, resident support group every month Uh, and then also I do some medical humanities work with them also in terms of like reading and responding to short narrative pieces or poetry that have been published in JAMA or Family Systems and Health and Family Medicine even sometimes publishes some of those pieces to varying degrees of acceptance depending on uh, how cooperative they're feeling but for the most part I have a pretty good relationship with them so they'll humor me even if Mm -hmm. they don't feel like doing it. Mm -hmm. And I do like right now we're actually reading um, in small groups when breath becomes air, a memoir that was written by a neurosurgeon who got lung cancer. And so it's sort of this duality of a patient memoir and a physician memoir and I'm making them talk about it. So we do, uh, I don't know, um, you know what that it's going to be so system dependent. Um, And I think for us, it's about, or for me, it has been about identifying like where are those pockets of time that we have the space to have this conversation and how do I just keep bringing it up? Keep bringing it up over and over and forcing it to happen. Um, it's funny
3: for you to be like, like they have some resistance. <laughs> some oh, resistance. yeah. I can see it in my head, but yeah. you're planning to see, right? Like yeah, you are planning You to are, yeah. you are. And
1: they, honestly, they do humor me. Yeah. And I think yeah. sometimes they're, Like, you know, some days you feel like going there and dealing with the emotion mess of it. And some days you don't and they're both. Okay. But I know I try to give, um, so this is again, a little bit from an education standpoint or a leadership standpoint, I try to give multiple different opportunities. So like, Sometimes it's like, let's have a really deep conversation about this versus sometimes it's let's do something like a little bit lighter or a little bit more reflective internally versus talking about it externally. And so whether someone's a verbal processor or a, you know, internal thinker or whatever, I try to make lots of different opportunities for them. Um, and it, it, it blends, it's not always specifically about grief and loss of our patients or, um, you know, how that affects us, but just this larger, we talk about self of the therapist all the time in therapeutic training all the time. So the therapist, self of the therapist, self of the therapist, nobody says self of the physician. Uh, so I do, I'm like, well, this is yourself as a physician and this is what we're going to talk about. And you know, they, 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 they hate to love me for it, but <laughs> so we get, Jen, there.
0: Did you get any of this? yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's so interesting. You were bringing this up and I think someone was commenting about this just yesterday on the listserv about valent group. Is, is it similar? Like, so, okay. In my resume residency um and we were small on a post we'd like maybe 10 residents we'd be like i roll it's valent time <laughs> and i i apologize i think his name was tony he was a lovely social worker that was like super into it and you know we were all like young stupid you know like oh talk about feelings but planting the seed monica like now 12 years out of training i'm like that's a thing we should do that more we need to get valent group going here so and it just you know, maybe it just took us that while to realize, hey, this is a good thing. Um, but no, I mean, Grace, not to like, you know, poo-poo your, your hard work, but I mean, we had, we, some of us, you know, leaned in and, and participated, but sometimes it was like, well, it made us uncomfortable. We didn't want to talk about the, the challenging things. So we kind of did the avoidance of like, oh, it's Baylen group, like who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think it, it was important and I'm glad they exposed us to that. And heck yeah, I've, I'd be a 180 right now. And wherever you are, Tony, <laughs> thanks for teaching me Baylen. <laughs> not to like language. shut out tony sorry tony, I think if, I'm name I'm tony it. if it was tony if it was something he's gonna be like dang it jen but anyway thank you <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah i just keep showing up and keep making the space And when and if they want to engage they can and ultimately like that's 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 our division of responsibility i create the the opportunities and yeah. then they can choose to engage with it.
0: That's great though. Live and learn, you know, I mean, you don't know what you need maybe when you're young, starting out as a clinician and you start <laughs> practicing like, oh, okay, there's definitely a need for that and make space for that. Absolutely. And what's
2: funny, cause I think the Whammy had done some research, some folks in the Whammy network, uh, which is like Washington, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, I think. Anyway, uh, the, the behavioral sciences got together and like pulled basically like what, uh folks like in residency what they wanted less of and more of and then like 10 years later what they wanted less and more of and it's like over and over and over again it was like I didn't want so much behavioral health stuff Uh, and then 10 years later it's like which more what more 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 more, you know behavioral health yes so which it makes sense you know when you're in training and Jen would know you know I don't mean like Talk for you, no, or like no, uh, no, go for it. Physicians blame you or something right now. No, but, no, all good, all good. You know, you're trying to get competency down. Yes, uh, with like some major things, make sure you don't kill somebody. Make sure yes. you don't get embarrassed by your your yep. preceptors and yep. some of the other more nebulous stuff. It's a little bit harder to pin down. So you're like, oh, we'll deal with that later. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a,
1: you can point to. I've done 47 C sections or yes. whatever. And it's a and, number. And there but, is, yeah, yeah, compared yeah.
0: to I dealt with grief Mm and my patient care (laughs) a hundred times a thousand times nobody needs (laughs) credentialing for that although (laughs) maybe we should We
2: should I know I mean we honestly made um like the basic skills assessment the BSAs we did one of the contextual interviews like can you Oh, I so
0: should have learned that. I'm like listening to the PCBH corner stuff. I'm like, I need to learn how to do that contextual stuff. She's talking about, <laughs> you know, cause you think about, I think about residency, I had to do two toenail removals and I'm like, ew, like I never did a toenail removal after residency. I hate that stuff. <laughs> I'm like, Was that a good use of my time? Heck no. I should have been learning contextual interview instead of basic podiatry.
1: <laughs> For all of those of you who feel like you still need to learn things
0: here we are. <laughs>
2: and we all are, right? Well, I learned yeah. about disenfranchised grief. I didn't ever put yeah. that together. And I learned on this episode about like, we have definitely some area of opportunity in our residency and in within our just like clinical teams, both aspects. For sure. I love it. It's so
1: fun. I think sometimes when we get to do one of these, a little bit of a how-to episodes and get really practical about what that looks like. So I am so happy to have had all of you here with me today. And we are going to have, from a distance, closing from Deepu.
5: This is a blessing for all of us who have experienced the death of a beloved or going through a process of grief. It is from John O'Donohue though we need to weep your loss you dwell in that safe place in our hearts where no storm on night or pain can reach you your love was like a dawn brightening over our lives awakening beneath the dark a further adventure of color the sound of your voice found for us a new music that brightened everything whatever you unfolded in your gaze quickened in the joy of its being. You placed smiles like flowers on the altar of the heart. Your mind always sparkled with the wonder at things. Though your days here were brief, your spirit was alive, awake, complete. We look toward each other no longer. From the old distance of our names, Now you dwell inside the rhythm of breath, as close to us as we are to ourselves. Though we cannot see you with outward eyes, we know our soul's gaze is upon your face, smiling back at us from within everything, to which we bring our best refinement. Let us not look for you only in memory, where we would grow lonely without you. You would want us to find you in presence, besides us, when beauty brightens, when kindness glows and music echoes eternal tones. When orchids brighten the earth, darkest winter has turned to spring. May this dark grief flower with hope in every heart that loves you. May you continue to inspire us to enter each day with a generous heart to serve the call of courage and love until we see your beautiful face again in that land where there is no separation, where all tears will be wiped from our mind and where we will never lose you again. Thank you.
1: Thank you guys. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to our listeners and we'll talk to you again next month.